Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. In this portion of scripture, we will learn about our helper, the Holy Spirit. You will also want to have John 14 ready for this message entitled, The Power. Let's pick it up back at verse 4. It says, And being assembled together with them, that is, with Jesus, he was assembled with his apostles, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then in verse 8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, with the exception of 2nd and 3rd John, every book in the New Testament contains material regarding the Holy Spirit. And for some people, they think that that is just where he should remain. For them, the Bible is the very safest place for the Spirit. But Jesus taught just the opposite. Let's turn now to John chapter 14. Just before he was to go to the cross to be crucified, he was in a final session with his disciples. They were upset and disturbed by his comments about going away, and Jesus says to them in verse 16, John chapter 14 and verse 16, Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is God. He is as truly and completely God as either the Father or the Son, and he is deeply personal, all-powerful, and ever-present. And he wants to make himself known in the details of your life and of your relationships. The Holy Spirit is God. He is a person. You see, the Holy Spirit is not an it or some kind of a force or some power. So you don't say, how do I get it? Or how can I use it? Or how can I get more of it? The Holy Spirit is a person. And notice that personal pronouns are used in reference to him. He is a person. He is a personality. Look at John 14, 16, and 17 again. Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is a person and can be known. As a person, you see, you can develop a beautiful relationship with Him. As a person, you can come into a close, personal, intimate fellowship with Him. And as a person, you can commune with Him. He is a person. He is a living being. Now, notice in verse 16 that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a helper. The Greek word for helper is paraclete. The word paraclete means one who comes alongside to help. Jesus had been alongside the disciples for years, but he's told them now that he's going to go away. 
He was their paraclete. He was their helper. He was their comforter. They depended upon him. They had come to trust in him and to rely on him. As long as Jesus was there, I mean, there was nothing to fear. I mean, he took care of everything. There was nothing to worry about. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He calmed the storm. He fed the people by the thousands. I mean, he was really handy to have around. He was always alongside, helping them. Paraclete, one who comes alongside to help. But now he's going away, and they're troubled. That's why it says back in verse 1 of John chapter 14, Jesus said to them, Let not your heart be troubled. They were troubled, and they didn't know how they would make it without him. And Jesus says to them now, I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, there are two Greek words for the word another. Heteros is the first one, and that means another of a different kind. For instance, after Jesus' resurrection in Mark sixteen twelve. It says that he appeared in another form to two of his disciples. In other words, he appeared in a form, a different form, a form of another kind. But there is another another in the Greek language, and that is alas, and it means another of the same kind. And that's the word that Jesus used when he said in John 14, 16, he said, and I will pray the Father, and he will send another helper, another helper of the same kind. Do you get it? Another helper similar to himself. The Holy Spirit is one with whom you may come into a personal relationship, just like you have a personal relationship with Jesus, who will come alongside you and help you in and through every trial of your life. So Jesus is saying, just as I was with you and I took care of you in every situation, so the Holy Spirit will be with you and will take care of you in every situation for you. It is so important that each of us come to know the person of the Holy Spirit, to know him in his fullness, to experience that comfort and that help and that strength that all of us so desperately need in the days in which we are living. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he desires to have a full, complete relationship with you. And the purpose is not that you might get more of the Holy Spirit, but the purpose is, is that the Holy Spirit might get more of you. That your life will become controlled by the Holy Spirit. Your character will be controlled by the Spirit. That you will be led by the Spirit. That you will walk in the Spirit. That you will be filled by the Spirit. The church is in desperate need today of a new, fresh work of the Spirit of God. Unfortunately, we have sought to substitute programs and psychology and many other gimmicks for the power of the Spirit of God. But the church is suffering as a result. What we need and what we desire is a fresh outpouring of God the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts and in our lives. A renewing of the life of the Spirit within the church. We need it and our community needs it desperately. And that brings us to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where we left off last time. Now save John chapter 14, because we're going to come back there. After Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, let's go back to verse 6. It says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. 
But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The key word is upon. There is so much confusion about the baptism with the Spirit. People get all hung up and miss out because they don't understand that there are three relationships Jesus talked about that a person can and should have with the Holy Spirit. Now, back in John chapter 14, Jesus talked about two of those relationships. Let's go back there now, save Acts chapter 1, so we're going to come back there. We want to look at those for a moment. John 14, verse 16 again. He says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. First of all, he is with us, when we are convicted of our need to be born again. The Greek word for with is para. The Holy Spirit is with a person when he begins to talk to that person about becoming a believer. You would never have been born again unless the Holy Spirit had been with you, whispering to you, God loves you, you are a sinner, but God sent his only begotten Son to die in your place. Now, whether it was through a meeting here or at a Billy Graham crusade, whether it was over the radio or over TV or through a friend, it was the Holy Spirit with you who began to tug on the strings of your heart, drawing you to salvation. If the Holy Spirit had not been with you, you could not have been born again. In Romans 3.11, the Apostle Paul said, There is none that seeks after God. In John 1.13, Jesus said, We are born again, not of the will of man, but of God. You see, a person cannot on his own say, Well, you know, I just think I'll be born again today. It doesn't work that way. The only way someone can be born again is for God to sovereignly choose to send His Holy Spirit to work with Him. That's the first relationship that a person has with the Holy Spirit. He is with you. But Jesus went on to say, and he will be in you. Same Greek preposition as ours, only they spell it E-N instead of I-N. Twofold relationship here in John. He is with you, para, but he's going to be dwelling in you. He comes into us the moment that we open our heart to the Savior. Now, when you open your heart to Jesus, the Holy Spirit came in you. He indwelled you. You were born again. You were regenerated. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, after Jesus had died for their sins, he had been resurrected from the dead, he came to his disciples, and it says in verse 21, listen to what Jesus said. So Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
Before he died for them, they could not have received the Holy Spirit because their temples had not been cleansed, you see. He hadn't died for their sin. So their sins had not been taken care of. But now that he has paid the penalty for their sins and they have put their faith in him, he comes to them and he gives them the Holy Spirit. Now keep in mind that the disciples in Acts chapter 1 were already born again and had already received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But as they were about to discover, the indwelling of the Spirit is only one of three relationships available to the believer. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The Spirit of God is available not only to work with you to become a Christian or to come into your life once you open your heart to Him, but He is now available to come upon your life and to empower you to see your own world turned upside down and made right side up. Verse 8, But you shall receive power. The Greek word is dunamos. It's like dynamite. You shall receive the dynamic, the power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Greek preposition, hapi, which is translated in different texts throughout the New Testament, is the word upon or over. So, the threefold relationship. He is with you prior to your conversion. He is the one who causes you to realize that you are a sinner. He is the one who points to Jesus as the answer, as he convinces the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then the moment you open your life and your heart to Jesus Christ and invite him to come in, the Holy Spirit comes and begins to indwell you. As Jesus said, he shall be in you. Later on, the Apostle Paul would write these words, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. But now there's a third relationship. This is an empowering dynamic when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, the steam in a locomotive does not exist to toot the whistle. Its purpose is to power the engine and to move the train. And so too, the empowering of the Spirit is not given for people to feel Holy Ghost goosebumps or emotional highs or fuzzy feelings. The Spirit comes upon people in order that the message of the gospel might be moved throughout the world. Verse 8 again, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. Now notice that Jesus didn't say you will witness. He said you will be witnesses. And those early believers had such joy in their heart, such love in their lives that it was undeniable that something radical had happened and that Jesus must be real. And so the dynamic, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. Now it is interesting that the Greek word witness is the word martus, from where we get our word martyr. And in the Greek, it does mean martyr. A witness is one who not only proclaims what he believes, he lives what he believes. He is what he believes. And he believes it so strongly that if necessary, he will die for what he believes. That's how strong is his belief. 
He is a martus. You can't stop him. He's not afraid to die for what he believes. In fact, almost all of them did die as martyrs for what they believed. But being put to death for your faith did not make you a martyr. No, because you were a martyr, you were put to death. Do you get it? Because you were a witness, because you believed it so strong. So it did not make you a witness, it only proved that you were. You were a witness all along. If you had not been a martus, a martyr, you would never have gone to your death. It's like stealing a horse. Stealing a horse doesn't make you a horse thief. It only proves that you were a horse thief. You see? No one steals a horse unless he is a horse thief. So stealing it doesn't make you a horse thief. It only proves that you were a horse thief all along. And being martyred only proves what you were and that you were a witness, a martus. You see, it is not witnessing that will turn your world upside down. It is being a witness, an example of what the Lord can do in a marriage and in a family and at your job and at school. And how exciting it is to see our world impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. In Zechariah 4 and verse 6, it says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And we will see, as we study the book of Acts together, that the early church impacted the world in a greater way than any group in history because they were ignited by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That was their simple key. Now, maybe your world, your children, your marriage, or your business, or your school is wrong side up or upside down. Do you know how it will be impacted? It's the same way that the world has been impacted globally, by the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life. The power of the Spirit upon your life will change you. Oh, it'll change you. It'll change your marriage. It'll change your business, your family, and your service for Jesus Christ. It will change every aspect of your life. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The witness starts right at home. I mean, that's the harvest place, first of all, isn't it? It's to start right at home in Jerusalem. Interestingly, of course, Jesus is saying this. Jerusalem was the place that he was executed at the words of an angry mob. And then it says the area around Jerusalem, the area of Judea, and Judea had rejected his ministry. And then it was to spread up into Samaria. Samaria was regarded as a wasteland of impure half-breeds. And then it was to go out into the end of the earth. In other words, it was to go to the Gentiles, and they were seen as nothing better than fuel for the fires of hell. Now, as we study the book of Acts, we will see this very progression. How that the witness began in Jerusalem. We'll see that in the next chapter. And then we'll see how it began to spread throughout Judea. And then Philip went up to Samaria, and then finally Paul and Barnabas are called to go to the end of the earth. And so the witness spread through the anointing and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the progress of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, becomes the outline for the book of Acts. Verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, see this is the final promise that Jesus made to his disciples. This is it. 
that they would receive the power of the Spirit. This is the final words prior to his ascension. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. What an amazing experience this was. As they were standing on the Mount of Olives, they suddenly saw him lift and ascend into a cloud. They never saw him again. Well, verse 10 says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. When Jesus comes back again, he's going to come back the same way he left. When he comes back from heaven to earth, he will come back physically. He left in a glorified body. He will come back in a glorified body. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he did it visibly. The disciples gazed upon him as he was taken up into heaven, and he will come back visibly. And when Jesus left the first time, he left gloriously. A cloud took him up. And when he comes back, he will come in the clouds. When he left the first time, he left geographically from the Mount of Olives. And he will come back, according to Zechariah chapter 14, and his foot will touch the Mount of Olives, and it will break in two, and a great valley will form. So the way in which Jesus left is the way in which Jesus will return, except for one thing. When he left, only his disciples saw him. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, it says this, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now, their obedience here is notable, isn't it? Jesus told them to return to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what they did. They didn't forget the sermon on the way to the parking lot. They actually did what Jesus told them to do, even though he was no longer physically present with them. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Now, a Sabbath day's journey is about one-half to three-quarters of a mile, 2,000 cubits by Jewish law. The cubit is the measurement from the forefinger to the elbow on most arms, about 18 inches. 2,000 cubits became the Sabbath day's journey, anything more than that, and you were breaking the law. Verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So the eleven disciples, the twelve minus Judas Iscariot, are present. Verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Now notice that they are in one accord. I mean, that is really different for these guys. I mean, the last time they were in the upper room before the crucifixion at the Last Supper, I mean, they were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, they were having an argument that they'd been having for about two and a half years. I mean, they were never in one accord. It seemed that, that they were always fighting and bickering. Now, what had changed? 
Peter still had the history of denying the Lord. Matthew was still a tax collector. Simon was still a zealot. The differences were still there, but the resurrected Jesus in their hearts was greater than any of their differences. Back in John chapter 20, Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, now they had Jesus in their heart, and that was the most important thing. And they were praying together. Prayer produces unity, and unity empowers prayer. When you pray with people, you experience a glorious unity which allows a greater release of blessing. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 18 and verse 20, He said, if two or three of you agree in prayer, there is a dynamic release and things begin to happen. So here were these people, deprived of the physical presence of Jesus, but they gave themselves to prayer, waiting for the full revelation of what God had in mind and in store for them. Prayer is always an essential part of the life of the people of God. And as a result of this particular prayer meeting, the church would soon no longer consist of 120 believers hiding away in an upper room, but would in one single day explode to number well over 3,000. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. Now, we don't know exactly who the women were, but it is believed that these were the women that followed Jesus in his ministry, Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, Solomay, and so on. So these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, this is the last mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus. From this point on, there is no further mention of her in the book of Acts or in any of the epistles. Now, there's one more thing to notice about this verse. It says, and with his brothers. And so we have the apostles of Jesus Christ, the eleven that are left. We have the women who followed Jesus in his ministry, the mother of Jesus, the last mention of Mary, and now we have the brothers of Jesus. These are the physical brothers of Jesus Christ. He had four brothers, and they're named for us in the Gospels. In Matthew 13, verse 55, they're named for us, James, Jude, Simon, and Joseph. Now, it's interesting that the brothers of Jesus, the sons of Joseph and Mary, were in the upper room. It's interesting because the Gospels make it very clear that they had previously been cynical, skeptical unbelievers. Now, what changed their minds about their brother? Now they're believers. What changed their mind? It was the resurrection. You see, when they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, they became believers in him. And James went on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Not only that, he wrote the epistle of James. Jude wrote the epistle of Jude. Now, if anyone could have questioned the deity of Jesus Christ, it would have been his brothers. They lived with him growing up. Yet here they are numbered among the believers. So here in the first 14 verses, we have all of the elements that make up the book of Acts. A resurrected Lord whose life is made available through the power of the Spirit and who will come again in power and great glory, but with whom we are yet in instant communication by means of the miracle of prayer. This is the book of Acts, and that is the life of the church. These are what makes any group of Christians have great impact in the age and in the place in which they live. And may God grant that this will be our experience 
in the days to come. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.